Have you ever noticed that the lower jaw is not protected in sports? Did you know that 10,800 concussions will happen today? This has been an upward trend for the past 50 years. I'm Dr. Michael Hutchison, a practicing neuromuscular dentist. When my son wanted to participate in football and rugby, I was afraid he was going to get a concussion. That fear led me to finding the missing link to reducing concussions. The fact is, the only part of the skull that is not protected in sports is the lower jaw. If you want to drastically reduce concussions, there are three basic jaw positions that affect concussions and two of them are not good. The correct one is called physiologic jaw position. It will dissipate the force away from the brain. Knowing that, I designed an appliance that put my son's jaw in the right place and as a result, he was concussion-free from fifth grade all the way to senior year. This jaw position takes those 10,800 concussions today down to 28. It's the key to concussion protection. As a parent, this is what you need to know. It's extremely important that the device you are using is on the lower jaw. Thickness of the device is important. Most importantly, it must position and hold you in your own unique personal physiologic jaw position. So if your child goes out on the field with the correct jaw position, your son or daughter will not one of those 10,800 concussions today. Get yours today at powerplusmouthguard.com. Use the promo code POWERUP2023 for 10% off. Thanks for listening to the Pigskin Tales podcast. This story was written and produced by your host, Ross Bliley, edited by Nikki Bliley. You can follow me on social media outlets such as Facebook and Twitter. You can find the podcast on multiple streaming providers such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, visit anchor.fm or you can find me on the Sports History Network. You can email me questions or provide feedback of the show at pigskintailspodcast at gmail.com. The soundtrack is provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Thanks for your support, and I always appreciate feedback. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Last time on the Pigskin Tales podcast, I finished my series on one of the greatest 60-minute men in NFL history, Ernie Nevers. He was considered better than Jim Thorpe, according to Pop Warner. He was a five-time All-Pro fullback for the Duluth Eskimos and Chicago Cardinals. He is best known for scoring six rushing touchdowns and kicking four extra points in a single NFL regular season game giving him a never-been-broken record of 40 points. Only two players in NFL history have tied Nevers' record, Gale Sayers for the Bears and Alvin Kamara of the New Orleans Saints. This time on the Pigskin Tales podcast, I'm starting a new series on a player most NFL fans might know. Without giving away the player's name, I can tell you that he's had Hollywood make movies about him. He became one of the best players in college football history in 1925. 
He helped legitimize the National Football League in the early 20s when teams popped up like weeds in a garden and when most working people didn't care for professional sports like football. He became a longtime radio broadcaster after his NFL retirement in 1934 that lasted for 25 years. Now that you might have an idea of who I'm talking about, this is Pigskin Tales. The story of Harold Red Grange. When I started my series on Ernie Nevers, I brought up some facts about former U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. This is relevant to the story because when Red was born in June of 1903, Roosevelt had already been president for a year and a half. According to History.com, he was named President of the United States after former President William McKinley was assassinated. In 1904, he won re-election as a Republican and, quote, became known as the great trustbuster for his strenuous efforts to break up industrial combinations under the Sherman Antitrust Act. He was also a dedicated conservationist, setting aside 200 million acres for national forests, unquote. Harold Edward Grange was born on June 13, in 1903. He was raised in Forksville, a small community that's technically called a borough in northeast Pennsylvania. Forks Township, where he grew up, was incorporated in 1880. According to the 2010 census, Forksville had 145 residents. I then looked up a more recent population and found out on datausa.io that the population of Forksville only added two more residents to a total of 147 as of 2018. Google Maps says that Forksville is about a three-hour drive northwest of Philadelphia. Williamsport, where the Little League World Series is held every summer, is only 45 minutes to the northeast. The town of Forksville got its name from the body of water that runs through the town. Little Loyal Sock Creek splits into two parts. At the fork, a little community was created by lumberjacks and their families. According to the website Red Grange Collection, which is an archive full of secondary information on the athlete, Grange's dad Lyle was a foreman of three lumber camps owned by Charles W. Sons. Grange's mom, Sarah, nicknamed Sadie, was a housewife to Red and three other kids, Norma, Mildred, and Garland. Red was the third child. When Red was five, his mom had gotten sick with typhoid and passed away due to complications from the disease. Shortly after, Red's dad decided to move the family to Wheaton, Illinois, to be closer to his folks. That's where Red says he grew up. Wheaton is a suburb of Chicago. It's about a half-hour drive to the west. The population in 2020, according to the website worldpopulationreview.com, is 52,019. 
When compared to my current city of Grand Forks, North Dakota, Wheaton's population is slightly less than Grand Forks by about 2,200 residents. I appreciate having the opportunity to say hello to all you charming people. I played my high school football here at Wheaton, and Wheaton only had the one high school. We had very good coaching. My first year we had a coach that was not quite up to par, but he was smart. He used to letter the two tallest men in high school. Now, they would not be football players, but he would see that they were out for football and they would receive a letter. They had just one job to do, and after the game, they would grab the coach and carry him off the field. And uh, people used to look up and see him above everybody else and say, there goes old Roy. He isn't much of a coach, but the kids sure do love him. I travel, well, every state in the Union, all 50 states and a few foreign countries. And when I say I'm from Wheaton, it's not Granger's from Wheaton. Oh, that's the home of Wheaton College. Everybody around the country seems to know Wheaton College. The city owes you a great debt of gratitude. My father was chief of police of Wheaton for 15 years when President Blanchard was president. They were very close, and they both wanted the same thing for this town. And I have been away for a long time. It seems to me that they have it. It's a beautiful, up-to-date, clean place. In high school, Grange participated in football, basketball, baseball, and track. According to the Red Grange Collection, he earned 16 letters of excellence in his four-sport participation. In his junior season of football, Red scored 36 touchdowns and helped the team go undefeated while winning a state championship. In his senior season, Red scored 39 touchdowns and helped the team win all but one game. The one game they lost was to the powerful Scott High School in Toledo, Ohio. Later, I will tell you how Red was knocked out during the game. While playing sports in high school was fun, Red eventually knew that it was tough for his dad to make a living as a local police chief. He helped out by getting a job as an ice toter. His job was to deliver ice to people's homes. He made $37.50 a week and it went to buy groceries. Because of his ice delivering job, people around town started calling him the Wheaton Iceman. Grange's track and field career in high school led him to excel on the football field. He ran the 100 and 220 yard dashes and participated in the long jump and high jump. He was a state champion in 1920 in the high jump and placed third and fourth in the 100 and 200 dashes respectively. In the 1922 Illinois State Track Meet, he placed third in the 100 and first in the 200. The only time Red was injured during a football game was in 1922 when his team played against Scott High School in Toledo. Grange was hit so hard on one play that he was knocked out cold for two days. When he woke up, he was still dizzy to the point that he had difficulty speaking. 
After high school, Red enrolled at the University of Illinois. During a speech as the guest of honor at Wheaton College, he talked about why he chose to go to Illinois instead of Wheaton College. The reason that he did not enter Wheaton College and went to the University of Illinois was the fact and the true fact that I didn't think I could make the football team here at Wheaton College. They had excellent sports. I remember, gosh, back in the 18 and 1900s, I used to go up to Lawson Field to see Art Twig and Dave Thomas was a catcher. I thought the greatest baseball team that was ever in the history of the United States. Four straight years we played uh, over in the, well, we called it the gym in those days. I guess it's the, uh, uh, the book uh, store now. We played uh, four straight years in the gym and practiced over there every Tuesday and Thursday. And Wheaton College was really part of our community. From the YouTube video titled Larger Than Life, The Red Grange Story. I had hardly arrived in Wheaton, Illinois in June, uh, after my first year, before I started receiving letters from Zupke about the game coming up that fall. In all these letters, he would say what Yost, Yost was uh, a coach of Michigan, what he had been saying about the Illinois team. He said Yost talked in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and he said we weren't fit to be in the Big Ten, and uh, you know, every week I'd get a letter. Well, eventually you get awfully mad, not at Michigan, but at Yost, you know. The game he's referring to is the big game between the University of Michigan and the University of Illinois. Michigan had been undefeated in the two seasons before Grange got there, and so Yost tried to write Grange letters to get in his head. I don't believe it worked though, because Grange had a pretty good game that day. According to the Red Grange collection, when Red went to college, he joined the frat Zeta Psi. Originally, he only wanted to play basketball and run track for the university, but a roommate John Maurer encouraged him to try out for the football team. He changed his mind when he met head coach Bob Zupke. Just before the game, coach Zupke had a trick up his sleeve. He told his players to remove their heavy wool socks as a psychological ploy to get into the Michigan players' heads. Michigan stopped practice and Yost and Herb Stager, the captain, came over. Yost fell some of our legs and he said, Zup, this is one of your doggone tricks. He said, you're going in the dressing room and you're going to grease those boys' legs. Well, Zup didn't deny it. We went in the dressing room, we didn't grease our legs. But I, I say, uh, the way that game went in that first quarter, I think that whole first quarter, that Michigan line is standing up and asking our guys, had we gone crazy or something out there without any stockings on? Thanks for listening to the Pigskin Tales podcast. This story will continue in the next episode. This story was written and produced by your host, Ross Bliley, edited by Nikki Bliley. You can follow me on social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter. You can find the show on most music streaming providers such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also email questions or feedback to pigskintailspodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network. 
For more information, go to sportshistorynetwork.com. The soundtrack is provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Sources of information were found on the web at history.com, datausa.io, YouTube, and the Red Grange Collection. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.